0: Hello, and thanks for tuning in to the Australian Investors Podcast, a series exploring the investment philosophies and journeys of some of Australia's leading investors and financial thinkers. I'm Owen Raskovich, founder of The Rask Group. For show notes and other episodes in this series, as well as free educational resources, please visit www.raskfinance.com. Before we go on, it's important to remember the Australian Investors Podcast is provided for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon to make an investment, financial or taxation decision. The information included in this podcast does not take into account your needs, goals or objectives and guests appearing on the show may have a financial interest in some of the products mentioned. Please read all the important disclosure documents and refer to the Rask Group's Financial Services Guide on the Rask Finance website. Stephen McCarthy is Portfolio Manager at DMX Asset Management. Stephen is a qualified CPA and a passionate value investor. Prior to DMX, Stephen spent time as an expert company valuer, working on mergers and acquisitions and in an insolvency. Stephen is known for his investments in quality small companies on the Australian Stock Exchange, so we spend time talking about his journey to finance, his investment beliefs, philosophy and process, as well as some of the most common mistakes made by small company investors. At the end of the episode, Stephen answers my favourite question with one of the best answers so far. Please enjoy this conversation with Stephen McCarthy of DMX Asset Management. Okay, Stephen, thanks for joining me on the show. Thanks for this opportunity. Uh, I'm gonna start it off a bit differently uh, in this episode. I wanna know what type of car do you drive?
1: Yeah, I drive an old well, 2013 v Golf, great.
0: Okay, great, an old v uh, And your colleagues?
1: Yeah, so uh, Roger Collison gets around in, a, in an old Honda. All right. and Simon Turner um, a master CX-5
0: so Great, so very functional cars Very,
1: very functional, very practical yes.
0: Wonderful, alright, uh, for listeners I'll fill you in on some of the details of that later in the show uh, but first, as usual, we'll start with your history Stephen, and um, I believe you grew up in New Zealand and you studied a double degree at uh, the University of Auckland um, I suppose, where did the passion for finance come from?
1: Yeah, look, as a Growing up, always had an interest in news, um, current affairs. reading the newspaper, and as a teenager, I guess that, that, that sort of progressed to to read the the business section of the newspaper. Mm-hmm. Uh, really keen to to follow company stories and corporate developments, and yeah, that, that sort of at, at that time started scouring the, the the share tables on the in the newspaper. Mm-hmm. Obviously, obviously pre internet. Yep. And yeah, that 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 interest led me to uh, buying my first share at about age eighteen.
0: 18, yeah, great.
1: It was a New Zealand company, um, Corporate Investments, mm-hmm. owned a collection of assets, including Montana Wines, and they're doing, doing interesting stuff, doing interest, interesting deals, and that, yeah, that, that company was actually taken over three or four years later, so it was actually a pretty successful
0: first investment. Yeah, great. Most people sell out at the first sign of a gain, that's yeah. a three-year holding period, wonderful. Yeah.
1: yes, yeah, so and then, so, just through university at the time, um, in New Zealand, there was a a scheme the student loan scheme where you could mm-hmm. actually at, at the time were, you could borrow as much or you borrow funds from the government um, and there was no no restrictions so you could like deploy those funds however you, however you wanted so I oh well wow. was able to um, yeah, to use use some of those funds to, to invest in the market and again it had some resulted in some, some reasonable success and was able to pay um, from the proceeds a, a fair chunk of my u- university fees
0: oh really that's great okay so you just you could get this money in was it interest-free? Uh, it was interest-free at the, at the time, yeah. correct. Oh, yeah, it's, okay. it's subsequently been, been changed, <laughs> yep, but not tightened up, but yep. at, at,
1: yeah, it was a, an opportunity at the, at the time to, to take advantage of.
0: Oh, wonderful. Um, okay, let's jump forward a little bit to your first job uh, post-uni. Uh, was it at an insolvency firm? Correct, yes. Uh, I imagine you were getting your hands dirty um, applying some of the things that you learned at school or at uni. Can you tell us more about that and, and what the, the types of things that you were doing?
1: Yeah so in in insolvency it's a it's a tough game um, and it's you know you're dealing with pretty emotional situations you um, you got shareholders who've fe- lost a lot of money families mm. have lost their businesses creditors have lost money employees have lost their jobs so it's you know it's pretty pretty tough situations to, to, to deal with but look it really made me focus on the on the importance of cash flow mm. and you know, if a small business that has more cash going out than coming in, it's, it's not going to be around for very long, yeah, so, absolutely. so cash flow, cash management, absolutely critical and to this day I, uh, I always invest in businesses that are cash flow positive.
0: Uh, we'll get to that in just a moment, but I can I can definitely see that borne out in some of the, the, the positions that you have in the portfolio and some of your commentary. Uh, so you, you, you worked there for a few years and then again you you move into this, I suppose, a corporate finance position. Um, and you work you spend a little bit of time as an independent expert, uh, applying your accounting knowledge. Um, I imagine there are a few late nights, and but some interesting some interesting things coming across your desk.
1: Yeah yeah so lots of lots of late nights and lots of tight deadlines mm-hmm. um, doing working with private equity on due diligence, um, of acquisitions they're looking at making. Mm-hmm. and also the yeah, expert reports for when ASX companies were subject to takeover bids, would come in and provide an independent expert valuation to work out if that takeover bid was, was fair and reasonable. So look, it was fast paced, there was um, you know, lots of lots of travel, lots of exposure to interesting industries and, and deals and mm. to people, businesses, so um, yeah, a,
0: a really good few years. I imagine it would have been wonderful to get a foothold in that industry and, and learn what goes on behind the scenes in some of these deals that we see in the news headlines. Um, Many of our listeners perhaps have had experience in, in private equity or corporate finance or potentially want, want to move into that industry. Uh, what, what advice would you have for them? And I suppose the point I'm getting at here is why did you move from that into public share, share into the share market and public equities?
1: In my experience, the, the best private equity operators are those individuals that have the right balance of commercial and business experience and technical accounting and finance skills. So it's... Um, yeah, getting getting that that mix of practice and, and theory is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not all about you know, working your way up as a graduate from through a professional services firm. Um, you need I think you need a a broader skill set than that, and those that can have that you know with a variety of experiences and perspectives to, to draw on are very valuable for someone looking for, for success in that field.
0: Yeah, no, that um, that makes sense. Um, it's um, certainly with the the, the pay packet, it's a very um, alluring industry to be in. Um, I'm hoping because it, I, I assume it was around this time that um, things were starting to get a bit shaky in in global markets and throughout the GFC 2008 2009. Uh, were you investing in public or private companies at this stage as well?
1: Yeah, so I was at that, at that time I was still working in corporate finance, mm-hmm. and it, it was you know it was tough. It, um, work had dried up completely. There was there was no capital around. No one was doing, mm. no one had funds to do any deals. And colleagues were made redundant. We were, I was cut back to a, a four day week, so that was a twenty percent pay cut. Yeah. Um, so you yeah. know, it really really hit home. Um, and at the same time, I, I was still investing in the, in the markets, and you know, every every day was a was a red day. It just mm. <laughs> went on and on. Um, you just didn't think it was ever going to turn around, but as as with all cycles, it eventually does turn, and there's opportunities coming up the other side.
0: Yeah, could you find, I suppose, comfort in the numbers? Being a, an accountant, could you could you find? You know, a lot of people are scared away. The behavioural biases kick in at this stage. Did did you find comfort in, I suppose, knowing how businesses tick them from the inside?
1: Yeah, I, you, you get comfort, but st- I was still amazed at the at the extent of the mm. the, the pricing. Um, and and, and they also as things started to turn, the opportunities that that were then available because you had businesses trading on so low so low multiples and businesses or companies that trading less than less than cash backing in in lots of instances. So that wow. the situation created a, a number of really really interesting
0: opportunities. I can imagine. Um, that's great. A great segue into what I suppose came next for you professionally. Um, Suppose the inception of, of DMX. Can you explain what DMX is and, and where it is today and where it started? Yes, so well,
1: DMX actually was, um, came from Dollar Matrix Corporation, which was an ASX listed company. Mm-hmm. Um, I had been a shareholder in DMX Corporation, or well, in, in Dollar Matrix for a number of years. Around 2012, I recall, that was subject to a, um, a takeover offer by. A, um, a waste management company in tox-free solutions. Mm-hmm. So Dollar Matrix was, a, was, was, was also a waste management company mm-hmm. um, and sold, eventually sold its assets to uh, competitor tox-free solutions. That left Dollar Matrix, or, or, or DMX, was mm-hmm. its ASX ticker code, as a, as a cashed-up shell. And it was recapitalized by uh, Roger Collison, um, John Welsh, and Michael Haddad, or three um, all, all involved in the financial services field, mm-hmm. they um, then began looking for fund management opportunities. They would secured an A4Cell license mm-hmm. and I, I was a shareholder, I was receiving their quarterly updates and their annual reports, and saw an opportunity to pitch to them a, a value-based micro-cap strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, providing the investors exposure to interesting opportunities and, and under-owned to access mm. asset class.
0: So for you personally, was was that uh, a tough decision to make to to forgo um, what I can tell, perhaps a, a lucrative career and and step into your own business? I suppose.
1: Yeah, it was. Oh, it was not something I took lightly. But anyway, mm. I that's saw, saw the opportunity. I over the years had built up a from investing a capital base that uh, allowed me the opportunity to to. To do other things and not having to, to work for a, a corporate employer mm. so this was a this was a, a, a really great opportunity for me and I was also something that was really important to me was as a retail investor I, I always thought it was really unfair that privileged broker clients got access to cheap discounted lines of stock and to discounted placements and mm. the really good allocations and ipos and i thought you know this is not a not a level playing for it and I really wanted to put a vehicle together that provided investors with, albeit an in, in, in indirect, exposure to, to those, those sorts of opportunities mm. and yeah, that, that's, you know, that's, that's pleased us to how turned out and that we are able to um, access those opportunities that are really hard for most investors out there to, mm.
0: to, to get access to. Yeah, they are. Um, no, I, I think it's great, and um, the performance to date uh, has, has been impressive. Let's, let's move into your investment process now. And to start, I think it's let's, let's consider where you choose to fish with the money that you have available to invest and, um, and why you do that. You invest in, in Australian smaller microcaps, and typically, when we say smaller microcaps, we mean anything well below $500 million in value and substantially less so. Let's just start with why do you why do you why do you invest in that in that arena?
1: Yeah, so so our our sweet spot's probably it's ten mil to hundred mil. Mm-hmm. Um, we do go up to five hundred mil, and, but it's really we really like that 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 sort of ten to sort of seventy five hundred space. Yep, because it's it, 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 we see opportunities there when, where where others are perhaps turned off from investing in smaller liquid companies. Um, and when we see that as an opportunity to buy growing under-the-radar businesses mm-hmm. on really attractive valuations because there's not a lot of natural buyers there. No one else is really interested in investing in those sorts of opportunities. They are normally very illiquid. Mm-hmm. And in, in this market, most investors want liquidity and short-term focus. They want to be able to get in and out and trade the news for, et cetera. And you just can't do that with a lot of these opportunities. So mm-hmm. that means that you have to have a, a long term perspective which we do mm-hmm. and you have to be um, comfortable taking on the the, the, the well, being invested in stocks with, with which with have limited which have limited liquidity yeah. and we're we comfortable doing that so there's um, we see it as an opportunity where others see see risks yeah. and and that means you know we can see help some of these small businesses that are doing good things that are growing they are profitable um, and we can provide capital to these small businesses, help them help on them their journey to grow. Mm-hmm. And, and that's something we're, 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 we're really pleased to do.
0: I think particularly in the small cap space, there's potential for the informational advantage, you know, if you can access that. And um, particularly if you've got the analytical ability and the, the behavioural edge is, is there. So if you can invest that, invest long term. Um, one of the interesting things is that there's quite a substantial tail on the Australian share market. There's... In your universe, I would say more than a thousand small companies. Um, can you explain how you get from that thousand down to a, a more manageable list for you and the team?
1: Yeah, so so we're we're first and foremost value-based investors, so we have to be able to get comfortable with valuation and margin of safety before we invest. So that means we prefer companies that are profitable mm-hmm. and probably of that a thousand, maybe a ten percent are profitable. And we also like companies that have a a Good track record and a good track record of generating cash flows, and that means generally paying dividends. Mm-hmm. So of that, hundred that are profitable, maybe only two thirds or half a paying dividend. So it is, it is a pretty pretty narrow universe. But that it's not a stack universe. There's companies coming and going. There's mm-hmm. IPOs. There's transactions. There's acquisitions. There's deals. So it's, it's not a it, you know, it's not it's not staying still. But it, it is a, it is ultimately quite a narrow universe
0: and quite manageable. Yeah. Um, When people, and we touched on this earlier, when people think about small caps in Australia, they they, they tend to think about speculative investments, biotechs, resources, technology companies. These these are common examples. It seems to me that the companies that you hold ultimately are quite high quality. So in fact, they're potentially the opposite end of the quality spectrum. Uh, From a high level, can you explain the types of quality features you're targeting?
1: Yeah, so we're trying to take away as much risk as we can from investing in smaller microcaps because they're naturally quite a risky, it's quite a risky universe. They mm. don't have the, the small companies There's often quite a bit of key man risk. There's um, startup risk. There's lack of diversification, lack of resilience resilience. So you, there are a number of risks that we're trying to remove those risks to the extent that um, we're dealing with companies that are profitable, They've got a po- positive cash flows as a track record of over the years of, of profit that we can see, mm-hmm. and we can see it got good visibility around their around their future profit So uh, we're trying to stack the odds as much as we can in our favour by investing sensibly, by not taking on risk around startups, around commercialisation of technology not coming through, mm. around you know, exploration not coming off, biotech's not. Um, delivering the results they, that they need to and really focusing on good businesses run by good
0: people that have good prospects. Yeah, great. There's a, there's a, there's a fantastic uh, blog post on the DMX website where you detailed 14 investment beliefs. Um, I'll pick out a couple of my favourites and, and yep. perhaps we can jump off and discuss how these came to be your beliefs and, and feel free to use any examples if you have them. Um, so, the first one was buy companies with a strong asset backing. Yes, so
1: companies that have a market cap valued at around or supported by the value of their net tangible assets, so you know, that's really interesting to us. Mm. Now, assuming those as- tangible assets can, are, are valued correctly, then it really provides strong downside protection because ultimately the, the value of the assets should be, be with the, the value of the company. Mm. And then, to the extent that you've got an operating business, in that company as well, you're getting the upside from that, basically getting that for free. It's an option yeah. around the, the, the success of that operating business because you're only paying for the, the, the net assets and that's we find that pretty attractive.
0: Uh, I suppose in some ways it kind of flies in the face of a lot of the things that we hear from growth investors lately is that you want capital light businesses that have significant uh, operating leverage, but um, I, can, I can certainly see why um, substantial assets are important. Uh, the next one on the list was knowledge and expertise are more important than diversification
1: yeah so we run a pretty concentrated portfolio there's around 20 20 stocks in the, in the portfolio generally mm-hmm. and we think it's it's more important to know a, a lot about a small number of companies um, than knowing very little about a large number of, of companies and yeah as a result we believe that potentially but the, the more diversified you become the, the more riskier the portfolio is because you don't have you can't Devote enough time to, to, to each of the holdings to, to stay on top of what's happening.
0: The next one was rejection of the idea that volatility or standard deviation is risk.
1: Yeah, so so, so businesses are dynamic. They're growing. They are making acquisitions. They're doing a lot of things that things that each day that change their risk profile going forward. And, and standard deviation is simply a, a backward-looking historic measure. Mm. When um, risk should be, should, risk should be reflecting, or an analysis of risk should reflect the, the, the future.
0: Absolutely. Um, and you're, you're preaching to the choir here, this all makes sense to me, so <laughs> I take no objection to any of this. One of the key features of the high quality businesses you target, at least it seems to me, is management. And there's a line on the DMX website that says, management quality is arguably the, the number one determinant of a company's long-term success. Um, this is often best done, I found. Through a qualitative rather than quantitative lens. I mean, we, we use both, but um, can you explain why management research is important, and outline some of the signs um, that speak to management quality?
1: Yes. Yeah, so the, the reality is, we're, we're investing in small companies. There's not a, a often not a, a a deep management team. Mm-hmm. So success is very dependent on a small number, a couple of key individuals, and so the, the, there is real key man risk. So you got to have the, the management has to be the, you know, the the right management are critical. Mm-hmm. Um, so there you know a number of factors that that help give us confidence that that the, the right people are in charge. And obvious one obvious one's been skinning the game. Um, we like looking at the track record of, of management, seeing what they said they were going to do three or four years ago. Did they follow through? Were there excuses? Um, and you know that that's all that's all well and good. But you know often it comes down to actually meeting management and eyeballing them, sitting down face to face. And just getting that you know that that, that gut feel can, can you trust this person to to, to, to manage this company mm-hmm. I mean it's sometimes it's hard to put your finger on it
0: yeah I was gonna say do you often get it wrong I oh, look it the, the biggest thing
1: we come across is just overconfidence okay Interesting. Amongst management and particularly if there's a, a, a turnaround or a, an IPO or a, um, a a new management team come on board they have come with all these great ideas but Inevitably, it takes much longer than they expect and it's a lot more challenging, but management, I think by their nature, are, 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 too, are, are too overconfident and that's something where, you know, we're, we, are, we are always aware of.
0: Yeah. Interesting. This, this next point relates to the first question today uh, about your car. Uh, there was a recent blog post on the DMX website, uh, I think it was written by your colleague Simon who, who wrote um, about the idea that investors undervalue simplicity. and you, that was where the VW golf comes in. In my opinion, we see this everywhere. We see um, the undervaluing simplicity across the full spectrum of finance from budgeting, gimmicks and tricks, insurance, and even picking a mortgage to investing. Uh, we often pay a higher price for things we perceive to be more sophisticated. Can you elaborate on why people often underpay for simplicity and perhaps how some of the things or how DMX stands to benefit from this bias?
1: Yeah, look, I think when it comes to investing, there's a real thrill or excitement factor around thinking that you might be part of the next big thing, mm-hmm. and the next ten bagger. You, know, you start thinking about the new car you'll, you'll get or the, the holiday you'll take if the stock penny dreadful that you're in goes up twenty times, and you know, that, that, that's all that's all well and good. And I think that the, the the valuation of a stock that's not making money is the the earnings are. Um, it's not constrained by its current earnings, so people can think of the the, the blue sky, the you know, possibility of taking this new tech business, taking it the next 20, Amazon, yeah, 40 percent market share. But you know the reality is that the chance, there's a, the, the chances of it coming off, uh, and before um, is very remote, and you know there's likely to be numerous capital raising dilutions along the way until reality finally hits home and there's a significant disappointment risk. Mm. On, on the other hand, you've got a business making widgets, making 10% growth a year, far less exciting, far, far, less, far less hype built into the share price, but i can pretty confident that that widget-making company over the next 10 years is gonna generate far superior cash flows than the hot spec stock. Mm. And at the end of the day, over, over, over a long period of time, um, those cash flows are what generates shareholder wealth, so the opportunity to buy those sorts of businesses relatively cheap is, is very attractive because they are the ones that are going to be generating the far superior um, returns over the long term.
0: I should add um, that the the question about cars was related to a study uh, which i'll link to in the show notes um, about uh, the flashy cars are typically driven by investors with a higher risk tolerance. So perhaps it's, it's, a, it's an opportunity for everyone to reflect on the car that we drive and how we invest and see if there's a connection. Um, the next point uh, I wanted to cover was the valuation and, and how you determine the value of a business. Typically, obviously, every business is different. Um, obviously, dividends are important to you. If you could use an example, by all means.
1: Yeah, look, uh, we, we use discounted cash flows when yeah. we're valuing our... Our, our holdings, um, and, but the, we're adopting realistic assumptions, we're adopting you know, five, 10% sales growth, and we're not looking at hockey stick type growth assumptions that mm-hmm. underlie the values of some of these really high growth companies. And that, that's what we're, I mean, that provides us with comfort. We're you know, happy making realistic assumptions. There's a, there's a stock, Fiducian, um, FID, it's been listed in 17 years, and all those 17 years, it's returned double-digit earnings growth across Fifteen of them, I don't know, of them, so it's mm. you know you, you those sorts of businesses are, are are pretty good to model because the, the assumptions are um, you don't have to make heroic type of assumptions to to support the valuation mm. and having done having, well, having done our DCF value we also look at um, multiples earnings and enterprise value yep and we're we're looking for businesses that are growing but on 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 lower on lower PE multiples so. Our, our portfolio is averaging 11, 11 times P.E. versus a market 16 times. Mm, quite the difference. Because we're investing in these small companies, there's the opportunity to do that because you can buy these good businesses on, on low multiples because there's not, the, there's not a lot of buyers out there.
0: Mm. Yeah. Um, how about sell discipline? Why do you find yourself selling? Do you sell when intrinsic value when in the price it's the evaluation or
1: yeah well, I mean, we, we are value investors so we, we sell when the prices are materially above our, our valuation. Likewise we buy when the prices are below but you know, we also sell when we consider the
0: thesis to be broken or we, we lose confidence in management. Mm-hmm. Do, you t- do you tend to track those companies after you've sold them? Yeah, we do we do. Okay, great. Um, coming back to the business now and, and DMX and, and the company, where do you see yourself in the, in the company five years from today? So,
1: oh look, the most important thing for us is that we continue to look after our investors' interests, and you know, we hope to hope to grow the business and um, introduce some some new products at some point. But first and foremost, it's provi-
0: about providing good service and good long term return returns for our for our investors. Yeah, great as you have done, I might add. So, where can our uh, listeners find out more about you and DMX?
1: Yeah, look, so, so our, our website, um, dmxam.com.au, yeah, as you said, lots of information, uh, and, and you can sign up there for our um, for our content. We produce a, a monthly newsletter and other insights and, and content throughout the month as well, so that's um, yeah, free to free to sign up to.
0: Yeah, wonderful. Okay, last question, Stephen, um, my favourite. If you could go back and, and tell the younger Stephen just one thing about investing, what would it be?
1: Look, I, I think it's just make sure you stay humble, um, investing inevitably has lots of ups and downs and you just can't afford to get complacent but if you maintain a long term perspective and invest sensibly the odds are well stuck in your favour to, to do well
0: that's w- wonderfully concise and great advice mate, thanks for joining me on the show thank you thanks again for tuning in to the Australian Investors Podcast for further episodes head to www.raskfinance.com. to provide feedback nominate a guest or hear from me you can find me on Twitter with the handle at Owenrask. Cheers to our financial futures.